0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Christ and Coffee podcast. I'm Jeremy. This is my good friend Haig. We're back after being away for two weeks. Uh, Haig was on vacation and I'm in the middle of preparing for a move. And so now we're settled back into a little bit more normal. And uh, we're continuing our project, our series in the uh, 66 books of the Bible. We're doing a crash course in the biblical books. And so if you remember, the last place we left off was 1 Samuel. So we're going to the Gospels today. No, we're going to 2 Samuel, because that's the next book in the Bible. Um, We talked a little bit about who Samuel was in the last episode, but maybe just as a refresher, since we've been away for a bit, Haig, you want to remind us who Samuel is and why the book is named after this character?
1: Yeah, so Samuel was the first Uh, of the major prophets last of the judges uh he plays a pivotal role of transitioning israel from this clannish tribish uh society to one of a kingdom so he appoints king saul after his kids were like rebellious pks um he he decides by the lord's guidance to anoint saul and first samuel is really the rise and fall of king saul um, but during that fall, the, the Lord tells Samuel to anoint King David, and during Second Samuel, you have the rise and fall of King David. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the two parts. Saul is kind of like the guy, the sage uh, that like leads the heroes on these journeys. Uh, there's a rise and fall for Samuel, I mean for Saul, and then there's a rise and fall for David. But the interesting about Second Samuel is. Saul is already, I mean, uh, Samuel is already dead. Um, so it's like a really interesting thing to still call it Second Samuel. I yeah. mean, if I, if I would have to label it, it would be like the rise and fall of King Saul. And then that would be First Samuel. And then the rise and fall of uh, King David, that would be Second Samuel. Yeah. Like they're lumped together as one book. They're meant to be one book. Um, that's why it's named Samuel.
0: Yeah, it's really one story from beginning to end and if you read it that way it makes a lot more sense than to break it up into two yeah exactly Um, yeah i think i think i remember hearing that the reason they have two books uh is just because they couldn't fit it all on one scroll so they had to have two different scrolls to be able to tell the the whole story
1: there's a word limit for these scrolls yeah absolutely yeah yeah so
0: um yeah so just as a refresher i Samuel is this character who kind of starts the story in both places. So he starts the Saul narrative that starts to sort of pitter out. And then he starts the David narrative. And then in second Samuel, that starts to die out. Yeah. Um, And uh, we talked about Samuel being kind of like a Yoda figure last time. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking he's also kind of like, you could frame him as like Gandalf, right? Like he's there with the two of them starting this journey and yet both of them kind of fail in different ways throughout I think Saul gets a pretty bad rap like David (laughs) like David is you know he has his mistakes and has his failures they're maybe not as great as Saul's but I don't know sometimes I feel like Saul gets a it's sort of a tragic
1: story yeah I mean he starts off good then you know he, he disobeys God a few times. One of the weird stories is in first Saul is he, he's, he does necromancy and wants to speak to the dead Samuel for guidance, which is a big no, no. Yeah. You yeah. don't talk to the dead. Um, so yeah, I mean, of course, uh, Saul is like, yeah, disrespected more than I think he should, because he's still, a, he's still like one of the prophets like i mean not one of the prophets he's filled with the gift of prophecy in like for mm-hmm. samuel he i mean it's not like he's distant from god it's just he becomes hard hearted yeah and
0: i feel like in some ways i don't know i mean we don't need to get too into this but like you know the literature is written to to put david up on a prop for people to celebrate yeah. david's story so it feels like saul is sometimes kind of a foil to david's story so everybody so, can be like yay
1: david so so i guess this is this is the key between david and saul saul doesn't repent yeah David does so one of the big problems in second Samuel is David hooks up with Bathsheba uh one of his main soldiers wife and tries to kill off uh Uriah and eventually does sends him to the front line um and then the prophet Nathan rebukes David through a parable because sometimes when we sin we're we're so blinded by sin that we never think we're in the wrong, especially if we're a king, especially if the pride puffs up. But then Nathan re- rebukes uh, David and he repents. So there's a famous Psalm, Psalm 51. It's, it's David's Psalm of repentance. And uh, there's that line we, we sing in songs and whatnot. Uh, take not your spirit from me. Take not your anointing from me. Um, because Saul's anointing was taken from him. He didn't repent while david was able to repent yeah i think that's a huge huge aspect of it and then the second aspect of why david is propped up over saul is the promise of the of the messiah messiah is coming through his line yeah that's right which is the key 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 passage not just in first and second samuel but i would say next to the call of abraham and and the promise to abraham this is number two and the most important thing god would say in the old testament
0: It sets the trajectory for everything else that's going to take place. Exactly. Yeah, I think we said it last time that like David becomes like the new hero of the Old Testament after Abraham. Yeah. Like the rest of the Bible after this story, after this narrative becomes sort of centered around David. And then a lot of the Psalms that we read and use in worship services are written by David. Um, And a lot of the concerns moving forward are whether they'll ever get a king kind of like David again. Yeah, so yeah, he becomes a a major figure uh, in the rest of the Bible. Even, you know, most of what happens in the Gospels is framed within. um, When we talk about a Messiah, when we talk about a Christ, we're talking essentially about someone like David who would do something for the people of God and bring the Abrahamic blessing to all the nations. So yeah, he becomes a crucial figure. Let's maybe step back for a minute, talk about structure. Um, really, the second the Second Samuel, the, the whole book is framed around David. Um, and so it begins with, um, you know, David consolidating power and then him slowly gaining speed um, to the point where then he gets this um, this big covenant promise in Second Samuel 7. Uh, and then things start to go downhill after David and Bathsheba, he then begins to have family issues um his son absalom uh becomes uh, a rebellious threat to his kingdom and his consolidation of power eventually uh absalom stages a rebellion um he you know david has to be on the run again so it's like the old days he becomes like uh on the run like he was when when saul was chasing him the
1: good old days yeah the good old days of
0: david in the wilderness um and then uh, eventually Absalom dies. Um, it's a tragic end for David and David kind of ends the whole thing in a mess and a failure, he's weak and he's, he's senile. And the, the closing of 2 Samuel is sort of a pastiche of a, diff- a couple of different texts and um, remembrance of David's life, David's um, successes and also David's failures. So um, that's kind of the big broad structure of the book Uh, Can you think of any themes that come up for you when you read 2 Samuel that might be important for other people reading through the text?
1: Well, so like the big thing to warn against, it goes back to the first part of 1 Samuel is Hannah's prayer. And it's pretty much how God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. And I, I think that's the big key here. It's not that David was perfect, but he was able to be someone who repented and someone who was actually able to mourn. Mm-hmm. so what anchors second samuel is it begins with him mourning the death of someone who wanted to kill him a father figure in soul and a brother in jonathan so they they die you would think immediately he'd be happy all right the throne is mine but it opens up with him actually being sad mm-hmm. and it ends with him reflecting on his life but right before he begins that reflection where there's these 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 different um appreciations and and whatnots there's a a mourning for absalom his his son so he's he's lamenting these people who were close in his life but were also enemies so i think that's really the beauty of 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 david is his ability to lament mourn uh be in tune with emotion and be honest when he was confronted with his sin Mm. so so the rise and fall of David is a tragic story, but it's one where at least God is going to be faithful to his promises. And that's the second part I would probably emphasize. Yeah. Uh, God, was, God, God will be true to his word, even though when we start reading First and Second Kings, where God promises David a, a, a kingdom that will have no end, and then you keep going down his descendants, it is disaster. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll jump into that when we go to First and Second Kings. But I think the main theme is the importance of being transparent, repentant and mourning our enemies even.
0: Right. Yeah. And the way that God works out his purposes in ways that seem strange and uncertain sometimes, and, you know, avoiding the cliche of God works in mysterious ways, like a a more nuanced way of saying that is, you know, there's these human partners that he's working through throughout first and second Samuel. And despite all of the imperfections and the destructive tendencies um, he's able to work in and through them. And like you said, the crucial aspect of that is repentance, whether they're able to sort of humble themselves in the midst of their wrongdoings and their imperfections and recognize their flaws and still you know, be used through the, the difficult moments of, and seasons of life. I think um, there's also something about First and Second Samuel that just speaks to this theme of how power is stewarded in God's community, in God's people. There's something about power that seems to turn the humble into the proud. And I think that's part of the narrative here and the the grappling and wrestling with what do we do with the power that we're given? And how is it that it can corrupt us into, you know, yeah, corrupt us into doing things that are probably unhealthy for God's community and for our relationship with God? Um, and David is a case in point, right? Like it says at the very beginning of that Bathsheba story that um it was wartime, right? So so he's got all his all his soldiers out fighting his wars. Um, one of the things that David was elected to be king for was to fight the wars for the people, so the people wouldn't have to fight them. And now it's the reverse. He's in his big castle sending people out and having them die for him in the kingdom that he has cultivated. So what happened there? That power shift is now, you know, he's the one in power. He's the one protecting himself. And he's using his power to take for himself Bathsheba and take Uriah, send him to the front, and have him executed and murdered um, while he gets to enjoy Uriah's wife. Um, One interesting note is that the language behind uh, David's taking of Bathsheba is that it's very uh, similar in the Hebrew to the language of Adam and Eve in the garden, taking the fruit for themselves. And so it's interesting how that story keeps showing up throughout the, the Old Testament, this decision before the tree of good and evil, this decision to take for ourselves what is good in our own eyes at the cost of others. Here's David here. He's amassed this power. He's amassed this kingdom. And his decision is to do exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden, take for himself what's good in his own eyes. He takes Bathsheba for himself and ends up causing just total utter chaos and destruction for his relationship with his family and his
1: relationship with God. Yeah, I think that's important. The consequences that, that even though God forgives David, there are the consequences of sexual sin and power are going to be passed on to his kids,
0: right? Right. Um,
1: and you see that right away with a very gruesome gruesome story uh, with tamar anmon and absalon mm-hmm. um, amnon uh, abuses his sister and absalon gets angry and kills them and then eventually leads a rebellion mm-hmm. um, there's game of thrones right here there's history of kings right here like, like if you read european kings and you think it's crazy it's 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 always the case with people in power i mean we 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 love to like talk about kings and celebrities who have these dysfunctional moralities of hookup cultures and mm-hmm. affairs and weddings and divorces. Um, it, it's interesting because people in power are able to get away with a lot of this stuff or do this stuff in the first place. And it's always public as well. Right. Um, it's it's just interesting too, that it's canonized
0: in our, in our scriptures, right? It's put right. in our, it's put in our Bibles for us to grapple with the very real human experience of you know, what do we do when we're given this power? Like, what do we do when we have these responsibilities? And it's always interesting. It's like, you know, there's different ways you go with that. Some, some people reject even taking power or taking any role of authority because they don't they don't think, you know, they can handle it. Some people take it and it corrupts them and some people grapple with how to best use it and, you know, pragmatically steward the power that they've been given. So <laughs> Yeah, it's part of it's part of our faith journey, our faith development, and our relationship with God and others to figure out how we use the responsible the
1: use the things we've been given responsibly. Yeah, so the Bible says, "With great power comes great responsibility." <laughs> that was from Spider Man, Uncle Ben. Yep, yep. Um, but yep. yeah, no, there's something true to that. Like, uh, I mean, I love that quote from Abraham Lincoln: "To test a man's character, give him power."
0: Yep, yep. That's fantastic.
1: Fantastic. Honestly, what uh, are some
0: of your uh, favorite scenes in 2nd
1: Samuel? Uh, um, so, uh, let me think here. So, I I mean, I do think I mean, I I want to keep stressing how important 2nd Samuel 7 is when God promises hmm. this kingdom um to him, uh where a descendant would be promised a, a Messiah whose kingdom will have no end, an eternal kingdom. And it it's funny, it's like David's like, "Hey, I want to build you a temple." And then God's like, you really think that's gonna impress me? Like I'm, I'm some sort of like pet you keep? Uh, I'm, I'm God. I'm with you. I've been with you this whole time. You know, I'm, I'm so beyond your, your, your primitive understandings of me. Um, but I want to bless you, and I want, I want, I want you to carry on that blessing to all the nations, not just your own people, but to all the nations one day. Yeah. And uh, I think that's always cool to see the heart of God using the Israelites to be a blessing for all the people. That mot- that promise given to Abraham is now enhanced to be even grandiose, but now it's anchored in a a, a king,
0: Hmm.
1: a kingdom. So, uh, I mean, 2 Samuel 7, uh, again, that that would be a a huge thing to read. Um, And Abraham, those covenants carry the narrative forward and help us understand who Jesus is as the coming king and the coming savior.
0: Yeah, I, so... I have a thing where (laughs) 2 Samuel 7 is so incredibly important and it's so incredibly nuanced as a text. I think 2 Samuel 7 is a lot like 1 Samuel 8, where Israel decides to to receive a king. Mm -hmm. Um, In so many ways... David's desire to build a temple for God is a kind of attempt to lock God in Mm -hmm. (laughs) to Jerusalem and say, I'm going to completely consolidate my power here in in Jerusalem. And everybody's going to have to come to Jerusalem to have conversations with God to worship like a centralized temple is part of his his desire to sort of consolidate his power. But it's also genuinely something that he wants to do. know authentically for God. So it's this very like mixed uh intention there, it seems like. And uh I love I love the text. I love Second Samuel 7 because it it plays on the language of home. Um Hebrew Hebrews word uh, the Hebrew word for home is bait. And so the story starts with with David saying, I want to build you a bait. I want to build you a house. And God says, No, like, you think I want a house to live in? Like, I, I'm fine roaming around wherever I want to go, you don't have to build me a house. In fact, I'm going to build you a house. And he changes the like the framing of the home to be like a dynasty for David. And so your house will always be established, your house will always be. So he, he kind of turns the, the tables on him and says, you don't get to build me a home, I build you a home. And, uh, and then basically the rest of the Bible is about that promise
1: of David's dynasty, David's family, um, all the way down to Jesus. Yeah. So I think that's good to connect that with the Israelites wanting a king as well. So the mm-hmm. same concept. It's like, um, I'm your king. <laughs> I'm <Yeah>. your home. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah. So, and then you see the fulfillment of this. And, and I think another important thing in theological circles or especially reform circles is this notion of uh these offices of prophet priest and king Mm -hmm. um so here in first and second samuel you have those positions really fleshed out you have Mm -hmm. a kingly figure who is an authoritative leader who organizes and structures the people of god and then you have a priestly person like samuel um uh and then you have like a prophet like i mean Samuel this is also a prophet but like Nathan, who plays a key role, I think Nathan is the, the second Sam. Maybe the another way to talk about Second Samuel is Nathan, because Nathan is the one who, who really is the guide for David. He, he's mm-hmm. the one who reveals his prophecy to David. He's the one who conf- confronts him with sin. I think Nathan gets a lot of um, he, he gets left out in the conversation, I think, in, in right. the importance of the narrative. but um, Nathan is this prophetic person who, who helps uh, the people of God hear from God and point people to what God wants and God wants um, an eternal kingdom.
0: And he becomes like a prototype of the later prophets who will do the same kind of thing to the Kings. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, it's very important that those offices end up, you know, at first they're kind of melded together and then they start to separate and it becomes important that, you know, the priest is not the prophet, the prophets, not the priest, vice versa. King is not the prophet prophets, not the the king. And then Jesus comes and steps into all of these offices and
1: melds them sort of internally in his own identity. So maybe that's what that's interesting about Samuel there. He's the, he's the, like the last one where it's all mixed, right? He's the judge. Mm-hmm. He's the, he's the prophet. He's also mm-hmm. the priestly leader. Mm-hmm. And now it's like, all right, we're going to delegate this. We're going we're to have Nathan. We're going to have the, right. the high priest And we're going to have uh King David, you know? Right. Right. Yeah. And, and it becomes kind of a,
0: a an ongoing conflict between those three parties Mm -hmm. you know i mean the, the priests don't like the prophets the prophets don't like the king or the priests and you know there's always sort of conflict with the the three parties until jesus melds them sort of together in himself um my favorite part of second samuel is david dancing i don't know if you uh remember that scene but one of david's moves to consolidate power is to bring the ancient symbol of God's presence, the Ark of the Covenant, into Jerusalem and settle it there. So he wants the tabernacle to be there. And that's just before he he wants to make a home for God in Jerusalem. And uh, on his way to bringing the Ark into Jerusalem, he gets dressed up in some very provocative clothing and I guess just does a wild dance. <laughs> and Saul's I think is it Saul's daughter yep. is one of his uh one of his wives to consolidate power and she's watching him make a fool out of himself and she's like shame on you and then David's like no shame on you it's like this uh this funny kind of back and forth between husband and wife that i don't know the scene just kind of makes me smile david's gone through all this hardship and difficulty and then he finally gets his day and gets to celebrate and enjoy and he uh yeah he gets to sing and dance and be you know just pure joy before god and one
1: another yeah yeah i think was it footloose in other movies or i mean there's christian traditions that condemn dancing and then this is like the number one passage to be like you know it's okay to dance yeah It's, it's good to dance
0: i think of uh remember pharrell williams had that song happy yeah, I just think of him dancing down the down the road to Jerusalem to that song, and exactly. Letting loose on the way.
1: Yeah, no, that's a great, great passage. What about some things that are more difficult to process, or things that are not necessarily yeah. easy reads? There's a really, really
0: weird story with in just just before David's dancing story, where the parade is moving forward and the ark is moving forward, and like. They hit a they hit a bump or something on the road, and the ark falls, and one of the guys like reaches to like hold the ark up and then it like strikes him dead.
1: It's yeah. just a
0: weird text it's it very like sort of seems very magical and you know arbitrary, you know, and it's still a little strange there in the text. I wonder what your thoughts would be on that
1: like what is that doing there? yeah, so I think this is important to keep in mind uh I mean, I used to struggle with this more, but I, I just, the glory of God is still with them. I mean, God is not confined to space, but he, there is a, this understanding that he is with them in the ark and then in the temple, even though he's like, I'm above this, but I'm going to still like appease you guys and kind of just be there with you. So, I, I mean, I, I do believe if we were really in the presence of God, like just going with that concept, like it's going to be overwhelming and could kill mm-hmm. us. Like, I think that's what is left out when we talk about what Jesus does, because like the, then Jesus, the, the presence of God is now in the temple. Mm-hmm. And when people go, they have to be purified of their sin. Otherwise they will be like smitten with God's smitened with God's presence. So th- I, that, that completely goes against our perception of reality. How could God be even in, in a space or in an object, or how, how can something be? So powerful there. Um, I mean, I used to be more skeptical about it, but now I read it more straightforward um, because I think without the cross, without Jesus' sacrifice for us, we as sinful people cannot be in the presence of God. It will kill us, literally. And you have that concept in the Old Testament. You, we cannot be in God's presence because we're so unholy. Holiness is so powerful where it will kill us. <laughs> like, like that, that's what I get out of that passage, even though it, it it seems like not fair that there was like, oh, I tripped and fell and then smitten.
0: Right. Well, and I guess the question becomes, what's the effect of a text like that? It like it demands uh, respect. It demands pause. Right. It demands like, you know. Curiosity, but also just kind of like, all right, wait a minute, like we should step back for a minute and handle this with care. And I think it's not a mistake that that text comes uh, in the wake of a bunch of things David is doing to consolidate power in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And David moving the ark to Jerusalem is a, is a very symbolic move. He's basically saying, this is where I'm going to be King. And this is where God is going to like ordain me as King. He's behind this (laughs) where I am. God is, you know? Mm -hmm. And so this moment is kind of God saying, look, I'm with you on this, but, there is, there is healthy respect and distance that needs to be maintained. Like you don't own me. And it's very kind of nuanced, just like the thing with him wanting to build a temple. Like I'll let your son do that later on, but you don't own me. Like, let's be clear on who's who here. Like I call the shots. And so I think this is just one way of like demanding that recognition of the sort of raw power that is God's presence in that moment
1: yeah absolutely and i think this is an important lesson for people in the church leaders specifically um it's not a cliche it's the truth jesus christ is the head of the church Mm -hmm. the moment it becomes about the pastor being the head of the church it's going to lead to disaster and sin and consequences and Mm -hmm. sadly that's been the case of church history yeah
0: yeah yeah if if part of if part of second Samuel and first Samuel is about sort of the power that we are given to cultivate and to steward, yeah. the reminder is in that story that it's God's power. <laughs> it's very raw. Yeah. Holy, uh, unique and, and dangerous power that yeah. needs to be taken care of. Well, yeah.
1: Especially with the just now like just substitute and use the word God, the Holy spirit in that yeah. situation. Um, I hate it when people think they could like control God, the Holy spirit.
0: Right right
1: god the holy spirit's god the holy spirit uh he, lead, he the spirit leads us guides us convicts us directs us the spirits where the church is um yeah. not the not the church building um important important things yeah i, I mean I, I love how you keep saying david's co- consolidating power because it's like it's behind the music of second samuel it's not really like david is doing this political move to acquire but like oh this is why he's doing this this is why he's saying this this is why he wants and then god's right. like nope I'm in charge. I'm actually going to uh, remind you who that it's my, it's my word. That's more important than your words.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's coming up for me. And as I'm, as I'm listening to the conversation that we're having more and more, it's like, there's a difference between saying God is with David um, and saying like God is David's, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like, Or that God, that David gets to sort of manipulate and control the situation so that he gets to say where God goes and who God gets to be with, right? And and so I think that's something we need to know in our current culture, in our context is, you know, there's a difference between saying God is with us and he abides with us and us being able to say, we've got him boxed into our tradition or our, you know, our sort of ideology um and and it's a it's a challenge second samuel is a challenge to that kind of thinking
1: yeah and then the how god fulfills the promise of second samuel 7 the Mm -hmm. kingdom that god establishes is not the one that david is trying to establish
0: that's right one not of this world it's not one of the other
1: nations and that
0: yeah that's huge jesus's kingdom is the i is the ideal davidic kingdom which comes in a very different way than the way david sets it up yeah that's true What's another uh, maybe difficult text for you? Something that's
1: yeah, I mean How'd the whole mean? the whole like Tamar story. Tamar, oh well, yeah. Um, yeah, that's pretty gruesome. Yeah, um, uh, and then just the violence—it's never fun. But I mean, I love how like again, I love how the Old Testament doesn't like shy away from the fallenness of the, the people. It's not like mm-hmm. uh, they just talk about it as a as a reflection of the historical kingdom of this of craziness of, and you find it in history too with kingdoms um uh with with how royalty acts the political arrangements again king, kingdoms of this world are very uh power driven acquiring right. power arranging marriages killing people who, who are uh to the throne rebellions for power like you have all that at the end of second samuel like immediately after david right worldly grabs of power and and that and and sex the so that the three evils money power and sex
0: yeah and that somehow God is able to work through those things and those broken human beings in a way that His work His recreative new creation work is somehow moving forward right yeah absolutely I think that's very interesting yeah. It, it's it's so interesting. It shows up in the gospels too. I I think that it's it's fascinating that you know, yeah. in in a text that's supposed to prop up David as a hero, we get the story of him as a flawed human being. And yeah. in the gospels that are being written to churches where the apostles are heroes, they're yeah. cast in the gospels as kind of goofballs, you know? So it's um it speaks to sort of authenticity and the reality that you know the expectations we have of one another are no. probably you know
1: they need to be tempered yeah and even i'm just thinking too about that cycle of the kings being disobedient and the prophets speaking out against them you have that all the way up to king herod taking mm-hmm. his brother's mm-hmm. wife and john the baptist saying stop it mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. like it, it, this cycle is going to continue and get worse <laughs> at right. First, second at first and second kings when There's a a civil war that takes place between Israel and Judea in the south. Even in exile, the return, and all the way up to Jesus's time, like Mm -hmm. this vicious cycle of 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 sin and the the kings amassing power, the prophets being martyred for calling them out. Continue. Yeah,
0: yeah, and that's a good, that's a great segue into a conversation that we could have on how important it is to understand these texts before you get to the Gospels. Yeah, absolutely. I think we try to read sometimes the gospels, you know, cold Turkey, when we haven't understood the, the riverbed that's behind it, you know, yep. there's a whole narrative that leads you up to the gospels. And if you're not picking up on some of those themes and, and, and texts in the old Testament, you're not fully, I mean, you can understand the general storyline of the gospel, but behind it, it's like, there's this whole rich treasure trove of yep. context that gives the gospels real significance and makes them pop in a
1: unique way. Yeah I mean the first um I guess heretic in the church is someone who wanted to get rid of the old testament. Yeah uh, you read my mind. And uh Karl Barth said uh, if we get rid of the old testament we cut the branch we're standing on. Um yeah. so yeah. like this is important because when Christianity becomes a thing Plato and other full, like western greek thinkers uh begin to infiltrate the the thinking of the bible and that leads to a lot of problems because it's an God has preserved these texts because we want to keep the framework of the Israelites where God is the Lord. Um, And uh, if we lose sight of that, it will not, we will, we won't understand what Jesus did. The word doesn't fulfill its promises. If we don't understand the initial words that were promised. Yeah. Second Samuel seven, super important because God is saying a Messiah, the Christ, that word Messiah, Jesus Christ is not his last name. It's a title. It, that doesn't make any sense if we don't get get this part.
0: Right. Yeah. The, the whole Messiah concept, the, the whole stream of thinking about who Messiah is and what the Christ yeah. is meant to do. Uh, it, it doesn't make any sense unless you read, uh, you know, at least first and second Samuel, if not all the way back to Torah. And it is an interesting development in Christian history and tradition, like when Greek philosophy replaced Judaism as the way to interpret the Bible. Yeah. And that's not to say that you can't understand the Bible through Greek, you know, philosophy. And Greek philosophy contributes a lot of great thinking to the church. Um, so it's not just as easy as saying Greek philosophy yeah, bad, Judaism good, but it's um when we stopped having Jewish readers of the Bible um shape the way we read the New Testament. Um, We got a very different new Testament and and that's something to consider and grapple with in the Western church. Yep.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. This is fun, Jeremy. I learned a lot and thank you for those who are listening all the way to the end of this conversation. Uh, Again, don't just take our word on second Samuel, pick it up, read it for yourself. Look for these themes, look for these passages um, and reflect on them. And Stay caffeinated, my friends, and see you next week, everyone. Thanks again for listening. God bless you. Bye.